This is a Sunday talk by Matt Saradsky entitled Actions and Their Fruits, recorded June 28, 2015, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So I'm going to talk about actions and their fruits. A core teaching of the Bhagavad Gita is you have a right to the action, but not the fruit. It says, set thy heart upon thy work, but never on its reward. Work not for a reward, but never cease to do thy work. So I'd like to talk about this teaching today. Just a little background first. The Bhagavad Gita is a sacred Hindu text from India. The name Bhagavad Gita means Song of the Lord. And it's a 700-verse Sanskrit scripture. Sanskrit being one of those ancient languages that's used in Buddhist texts as well as Hindu texts. And the Bhagavad Gita is a teaching story set in the Mahabharata, which is a much longer epic story. Scholars estimate that the Bhagavad Gita was composed sometime between the 5th and the, and the 2nd century BC. So, quite a while ago, 23 to, 22 to 2500 years ago. And it's comprised of a dialogue between Lord Krishna, who's a, a deity, a god, and Prince Arjuna. He's a, a warrior prince. Unlike many spiritual texts, the Gita is written specifically for householders, specifically for people who have all sorts of worldly responsibilities that require that they act, that they can't just go off and live in that cave in the mountains. So most of us don't have the luxury, and our culture doesn't really support, unless you maybe become a nun in, a, in the Catholic tradition or a, a monk or something. Uh, I suppose there's, a, there's now some Tibetan Buddhist nuns and monks and stuff, but... For the most part, we all have to act. So the center here, the way that we do our teachings, is geared specifically for householders, for people who are living in this culture, you know, own a house, own a car, have a job, or are retired, but you know, have to watch their finances. <clears throat> so we all have to act in some capacity here. Mahatma Gandhi the famous activist who helped bring liberation from British colonial rule to India, he read the Bhagavad Gita daily and he called it his spiritual dictionary. So all the teachings in the Gita are geared towards helping us attain spiritual freedom. And we'll define that as freedom from suffering in all its forms. According to mystics, our problem is not that we must act in life but that we misapprehend our true identity and assume that our actions will bring us lasting happiness. We think that what we are doing will get us the happiness that we're seeking. The Gita teaches us how to discover our inherent happiness through understanding the true meaning of action. So the Gita's teaching is all about how to find the happiness that we already have and to uncover this hidden assumption that we think that we're going to get happiness by doing something. 
So this teaching about action must be pretty important. You have a right to the action, but not the fruit. Set thy heart upon thy work, but never on its reward. Work not for a reward, but never cease to do thy work. Normally, we act because we want a result. We assume that the fruit is the reason for the planting of the seed. Right? We planted apple trees in our backyard. We wanted apples. It's pretty normal behavior. We get a job. We go to work. We expect a paycheck. If we don't get paid, we can't pay our bills, buy food, pay the rent, or the mortgage. So we need this fruit in order to survive. We need the fruit of our actions to survive. It's up to us to make things happen. This is what we think. But according to the mystics, we're not separate from the cosmos around us, from the world. But under delusion, we feel isolated. We feel cut off. A big part of our sense of separate identity is our perceived personal will. The sense that we have the ability to personally act. We feel that we have a choice in what actions we take. However, if we pay attention, we can see that most of our actions are conditioned. And they're conditioned by our self-centered desires and aversions. We divide the world into objects, which we feel separate from. Some we like, some we don't like. And under delusion, under this sense of separation, we move toward what we like and we avoid what we don't like. And so that conditions all of our activities. However, we don't get lasting happiness this way. We continue to cycle between likes and dislikes. When we get what we want, sometimes for a little while we are happy. But it never lasts. So the mystics say the reason we glimpse happiness is because for that brief moment, we are no longer wanting. We're no longer desiring. Our cravings are temporarily satisfied. But if we continue to seek and satisfy desires and cravings in this way, they do not weaken. If anything, they get stronger through habit. And our suffering increases. Buddha, the historic Buddha, the original Buddha, said that all suffering comes from craving, from desire. And the root of craving is the sense of a separate self. This is what the foundation of Buddhism. This is our conditioning. This is our dilemma. The Eastern mystics say that action is karma. Action itself is conditioning. In fact, the definition of karma is action. According to Wikipedia, I love the internet, makes these writings talk so much easier, right? (laughs) Karma means action, work, or deed. It also refers to the principle of causality, where intent and actions of an individual influence the future of that individual. 
Good intent and good deeds contribute to good karma and future happiness, while bad intent and bad deeds contribute to bad karma and future suffering. So that's what Eastern mystics say about action. Western mystics don't talk about karma, but they do talk about sen. Sometimes a taboo subject, but let's, let's see what the Western mystics say. According to Western mystics, the original sin is described as caused by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So good and evil are our own personal likes and dislikes, our desires and aversions. We divide the world up into what we like and what we don't like, into good and evil, and we act accordingly. And because we divide the world up, that's our original sin. Meister Eckhart Christian mystic, he says, all suffering comes from loving, minding. Liking or minding is the alpha and omega of suffering. I trouble about temporal things because I mind about them, because I still set store by the things of time and do not yet love God wholeheartedly with all the affection he demands and would make sure of getting. So is it to be wondered at if God is always sending us suffering and pain? He was always a pretty fiery speaker, I think. So again, our personal conditioned habits of dividing the world into likes and dislikes is what creates our bondage, our suffering, our sin. On this, the mystics globally are basically in agreement, if we can understand what they're saying. So according to the mystical teaching of action, the fundamental conditioning factor, the factor that really conditions us through action, is that it is the intention behind the action that determines its effect. And the effect we're speaking of here is not necessarily the effect we think of when we think of action. Normally when we think of action, we think of obvious effects, such as when I hit a nail on the head with a hammer, the effect is that the nail goes into the wood. But in mysticism, we're concerned with volitional action. That is, action with intention. And again, like Wikipedia mentioned, basically selfless intention leads to happiness, while selfish intention leads to suffering. A good, if somewhat extreme example of this is killing. Like if you have to euthanize your dog. We had a dog named Panya. And she fell ill suddenly a couple of years ago, a little over two years ago. She was 11. But we, we thought she was healthy. She's going to live to be really old and all this very active dog. It turned out that she had some advanced cancer. And it was pressing on her heart. And she was bleeding internally. And you know, blood was filling up the thoracic cavity. And you know, she just finally, she just suddenly kind of collapsed one day. And so we took her to the vet, the vet, took her to the emergency vet. They did the scans, you know, and they gave us the option of doing some surgery, some pretty intense surgery. And it might, they said, well, you might, she might live another month if you do the surgery. So if she were human, maybe we would have done the surgery, you know, another month, get all the relatives to come, say goodbye or something like that. But we chose to humanely end her life. And we put her to sleep. All four of us had our hand on her as she passed. Because you know, they just did the injection. So 
And it was very, it was actually very peaceful. Another type of killing, some poachers will hunt wild rhinoceroses for their horns and they sell them on the black market. It's illegal, right? They'll kill, they'll kill these endangered animals for profit and just leave the corpses to rot, right? Just, just take the horns. So the karmic conditioning that results from these two similar acts of killing an animal is very different. On the one hand, it was really sad. I mean, everybody cried. It was, but ultimately, it was compassionate killing. And we could forgive ourselves, and we could remember our panya, our pet panya, with love. Right? On the other hand, the poachers are going to suffer. They're, they will, even if they don't get caught. Because they're, they're actually selfish, and it brings no love, it brings no compassion, brings, there's no heart in it. There's only maybe fear of getting caught, and greed for more money, more wealth. They might perhaps have a temporary time of enjoying the spoils of their, uh, their poaching, but they're not going to get lasting happiness from it. And this, so this is an endless cycle, this kind of action from selfish intention. It's endless. It was a difficult decision to put Piney to sleep. It was not an easy decision. It was hard to let her go. But we think it was the right thing to do. Not primarily for us, but for her to end her suffering. She was in severe pain. And in the end, she passed peacefully. So to act from a place of love and compassion means to let go of the attachment to the fruits of our actions. You know, we didn't want to let her go. We wanted to have her dog. You know, we had to let go of her. And to stop acting out of desire and aversion. If we act from a place of love and compassion, then we're not seeking personal satisfaction any longer. And the secret here is that the satisfaction that we always are craving is already within us in our capacity for love. Love itself is the truth of the divine. Sri Anandamaya Ma, a great Hindu mystic of the last century, she said, man's life must gravitate towards the realization of the truth that the Lord is love. And love is also the bliss of the divine, as well as being the truth. Sri Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi, the great Hindu mystic, also Hindu, said, it is only through jnana, jnana, gnosis or realization, that the bliss that derives from true love will arise. So coming from love, our action then is free because it's not grasping after results. And this is why the Bhagavad Gita says, he whose mind is untroubled by sorrows and for pleasures he has no longings beyond passion and fear and anger, he is the sage of the unwavering mind. And it also says, the soul that moves in the world of the senses and yet keeps the senses in harmony, free from attraction and aversion, finds rest in quietness. When we begin to act from love and compassion, we begin to experience the interconnectedness of the cosmos. We begin to cease feeling separate. 
what love is, right? It's a shared identity. In reality, what arises is conditioned to arise. It's not fundamentally up to us. There are innumerable causes at play in every instance, every moment. In Buddhism and Hinduism, they say that each infinitesimal particle of the universe contains a connection to every other infinitesimal particle. Alan Watts, the prolific English interpreter of the Eastern wisdom traditions, he described it this way. He said, Imagine a multidimensional spider's web in the early morning covered with dewdrops. And every dewdrop contains the reflection of all the other dewdrops. And in each reflected dewdrop, the reflections of all the other dewdrops in that reflection, and so on ad infinitum. That is the Buddhist conception of the universe in an image. In Hinduism, this is known as Indra's net. Indra's one of the gods of creation. And it's the basis for the Hawaiian Buddhism of the Avatamsaka Sutra, which means the flower garland sutra. So what they're saying basically is that everything is connected to everything else through an infinite web of creation, like like an infinite garland of flowers. And because this is so, we cannot change what is already happening. It's connected. It's already connected. But our intention behind each action we make conditions us. So if we act selfishly, then we're creating out of this infinitely spectacular world a prison of ego. If we act selflessly from love and compassion, then we're expressing the truth. The truth is the interconnection or interdependence, sometimes put. So it's a right. We have the right to action, but not the fruit. It's our right to act from this reality. But if we attach to the fruit of our actions, we go against reality. We don't have that right. If we try, we will suffer. It's inevitable. But we must act. Action is life. It's unavoidable. As long as we have a body, there's a world. World and body go hand in hand. Action or work is this interplay between the body and the world. It's our interaction. It's the dance Joel, Joel often says, he says, life is like a dance. It's compulsory. You can either drag your feet or join in. <laughs> right? I always skip my dances in school. And I was like, all right. <clears throat> and we have to eat. Without eating, we'll die. We must act. The Bhagavad Gita again. Not by refraining from action does man attain freedom from action. Not by refraining from action does man attain freedom from action. He who withdraws himself from actions but ponders on their pleasures in his heart, he is under delusion and is a false follower of the path. And Meister Eckhart again. People who, in a state of freedom and interior calm, envision God in peace and quiet, And when they're able to see him just as well in turmoil and disquiet, there is perfect equanimity. So, why do we eat? What is our life about? How do we respond to turmoil, to the wants of the world? Do we act from an expression of our 
dissatisfaction, our dis-ease? Or do we allow our actions to arise as an expression of this truth of interconnection? The Gita again. In the bonds of works I am free, because in them I am free from desires. The man who can see this truth, in his work he finds his freedom. Being free of desires means being free of self-centered desires, not selfless desires like the desire to help others. But being free of that selfish grasping after the fruits of our actions. And the obvious fruits of our actions, which we like to claim as ours, are in truth not ours. Do we make the sun shine to grow the food that feeds us in our gardens? Do we make the rain fall to feed the plants and the animals? Do we make the gravity that keeps us on on this earth? Do we make our heart pump even in here in the body? Will the lymph circulate or the senses perceive? Is that something that we're doing? In truth, our entire life is a miracle of the cosmos. You know, Western medicine, they forget this sometimes. And and, and, And so there's this... When people are dying, there's this frenetic grasping on, forgetting that every every moment was a miracle already, right? And and the, the death is just one more of those. This is the next great adventure, right? Every moment is precious and depends upon so many other beings and invisible forces that we can never conceive of all of the connections. We couldn't possibly come up with all of them. We can you know, come up with some and see some connections. And and science is based on being able to draw some conclusions and repeat things. But the whole thing is vast. It's beyond, beyond conception. In theistic terminology, we would say that every moment is a divine gift, a gift of God or goddess. So to think that what happens is under our control is completely ludicrous. But also to think that we have no control over our happiness is deluded. Happiness depends not upon our circumstances, nor the result of our actions. Happiness depends not upon our circumstances, nor the result of our actions. Happiness depends upon how we see our actions and our role in life. It's like a reframing. We are already whole. And it is only our grasping and avoiding which causes our bondage, our suffering, our sin. If we can find our internal harmony, then all we do will be an expression of this truth. Again, the Gita. The man who in his work finds silence and who sees that silence is work. This man in truth sees the light and in all his works finds peace. He whose undertakings are free from anxious desire and fanciful thought, whose work is made pure in the fire of wisdom, he is called wise by those who see. In whatever work he does, such a man in truth has peace. He expects nothing. He relies on nothing and ever has fullness of joy. And Ramana Maharshi again. A heart in which the kamya buddhi, a mind that desires particular results, has departed, and which possesses the auspicious and excellent nish 
kamyab buddhi, a mind that lacks desires for results, will be the home of bliss. So, any questions? Yes. Hi. Hi, Christy. Um, it sounded like part of the quote, um, one of the quotes, uh, that people don't have to be responsible for their actions or what happens. I mean, I, I got confused on that because it said, you said, um, our actions are not our own. It was that part. You know, because the breathing, the pumping of our heart. Uh-huh, right. Okay, so. What, what I said was that now, this is, this is an important point. We have a right to the action, but not the fruit. And what I said was that the f- obvious fruits of our actions are in truth not ours. So, we, for instance, you have a garden. You know, and you go out every morning and you water your garden when it's hot like this. Well, not tomorrow, right? But, or today at least. And you, know, you put the seed in the ground. You, know, you decided you wanted to grow peas, let's say. right? And you did that stuff. And... In a couple of months, you got peas. We think it's art. It was because of us that the peas grew. It's not. I mean, fundamentally, so many factors went into that. A couple of them were there was a human that went and put something in the ground, but those weren't even the most important of the things that happened. Right? There was a seed. There was the DNA. There was the sun. There was the water. There was the earth. So many factors, and we, but we claim them. We claim that as, you know, oh, I grew these peas. God grew the peas. You were serving God. And the peas happened for your benefit. Right? But if we claim the actions, or the, sorry, the fruits as our own, then we get into this, this quandary where then we think we need fruits to be happy. We th- and we think that it's... Hmm. Another example is something bad happens to your family. Right? Somebody's in a car accident, you know, was really injured or killed. And, oh my God, I should have called them. I should have told them to come home. Oh, I should have, you know, all the shoulda, woulda, coulda. And you cause yourself need endless suffering from guilt when, in fact, you did nothing. You know, there was, there was nothing you could have done. It, 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 you know. So it's the same thing, right? Either we're, Look at what I accomplished, or we're like, "Oh, poor me! What, you know, what did I do?" What we have to be responsible for is what our intention is. Where are we coming from? And then we have to learn how to let go of what happens. Otherwise, we'll be miserable. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. So that that you, you kind of are getting to the extension of that question. Then is the intention they're approaching my nostrils? There is responsibility in the intention. The intention is still divine. What was about? So, the, are you talking about the rhinoceros poacher, or? Yeah, well, because it's the, the analogy when you're planting a seed and not being responsible feels different than the analogy when somebody's. It comes down to the intention. Yes. So, if you're planting a seed to grow food, that's a compassionate, loving thing to do, right? People need to eat, and life is beautiful. But killing out of greed is a selfish act. In both cases, though, you're not responsible for the fruits. True. Because there is no you. (laughs) (laughs) But in one case, you won't suffer. I mean, you'll be fine. You'll be, you know. 
and this is why you know a lot of times in the Zen texts um, they'll talk about you know some bandit bandit chieftain right I can't remember all the different names of these guys but who you know was a murderer and a, a brigand and a surly horrible fellow and and finally had enough suffering and turned to the Dharma and had a great realization and became a great Zen master. And it's like, well, wait a minute. How, how come his path was so short? Well, you know, because he, he realized that he didn't exist. And, and so all of that negative karma, I mean, he might still have a fat, you know, might be thrown in jail or somebody might find, you know, see him and just decide that, oh, that's the guy that killed my parents or whatever, you know. But the point is, we don't, to be happy, we need to see the truth. We think that we need to, and there is such thing as accumulating, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, the Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhists, they talk about accumulating merit. And that means coming from love and compassion over time. And that merit becomes like a, uh, a river, like a, a potential that benefits others, though. It's not primarily for you. So when, when the texts say, once we reach the stage of bodhisattva or, or enlightened, it's the force of the wishes that you had before you were enlightened and now you have no desire. But the force of that is what benefits the beings. It's like uh, the results of that, of those merit, the meritorious um, prayer. So there's that. And that's why we should all cultivate love and compassion no matter how deluded we are. But the truth is seeing the truth letting go of the results of our actions because we don't have control over what happens. We have control over our intentions. We have control over whether or not we... um, hmm. Everybody's presented with a choice. You know... Are, are, in this moment, are you going to uh, continue to ignore what's looking at you in the face? Yeah. And you know, I mean, and then you could argue, yes. Well, do you even have that choice? But that's not a useful argument to make because, from the perspective of somebody that experiences choice, that's the most important choice that you can focus your attention on. And then it just becomes pedantic if you start talking about that kind of thing. And then what's the use of practice and all that? The, the reality is that people who practice get happier. It's just, you know, it's just the truth. It's our experience. If not, if you don't think so, go go practice and see what happens. <laughs> or, don't practice or don't practice and see what happens. Exactly. Yeah, practice for a little while and then stop practicing and see how you feel then. Yeah. Leslie. Okay, you were you were uh, putting some emphasis on uh, your intention, and so I'm thinking, well, if if we follow uh, Joel and and look inside and don't find anybody, or if we follow Kurska, who says there's nothing behind my eyes. Then we have the puzzle of is the, is the intention really the intention of this constructed conditioned self, which is imaginary, which is thoughts and stuff clung to a cell, or is it is it the product of something outside of this body, or am I just mixed up? 
Well, so, you know, again, this is kind of what I was just alluding to, is that when we start getting to, um, you can't talk about ultimate truth. You can only talk about relative truth, because ultimate truth transcends concepts. So you can point at it, and, and you know, so it's like the, the whole thing with the, um, you know, the five blind men and the elephant. You guys heard that one, right? Okay, I'll, I'll tell. So there's five blind men and there's an elephant. And one, one of the blind guys is feeling the elephant's trunk. He's saying, oh, it's wrinkly and long. It's kind of like a snake. You know? And one's feeling the tail. And he's saying, it's not so wrinkly and it's kind of fluffy at the end. It's really narrow. One's feeling the leg. And he's saying, it's huge. It's like a tree. You know, one's feeling the belly. And he's, you know, it's, like a, it's like a boulder. And then one's feeling a tusk. It's smooth. You know? It's an elephant. Right? So... Um, we experience a, a, a power of awareness called attention. And the, the question on the path is, where are you putting your int- attention? In the path of practice, where are you putting your attention? Intent, so or intent. It's basically the so same. Intention is really a type of attention. It's a type of attention, yeah. So it sounds like really like an activity of consciousness, almost. Well, that's what everything is an activity of consciousness. Well, I know, but that's not fair. <laughs> well, your question wasn't fair. No, no, but no, but no, really, though. Okay, so there's like an ocean of consciousness, right? So this is, you know, and it, and then it, we experience it experiences itself through all these forms, and 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 then experiences the returning. Actually, every night that happens, we're just not paying attention. Everything returns to the sea. Everybody has deep sleep, right? Deep sleep is consciousness without a subject and without an object. It's very blissful. It's very peaceful. We love it. We want it every night. We kind of need it for our mental health, right? And the body's health, too. We think that, the, that you know, under delusion, we think we go to sleep and it's like the... You know, something shuts down like a like a robot. You know, it's on hibernate or something. But actually, what's happening is consciousness is withdrawing back into itself. And then when we wake up, it's it's projecting back through the senses in the body. So all, all of our experiences are that some aspect of that. Our sense of attention, intention. So maybe he has to, you know, when we're like. So, okay, so this is another way of putting it. We're all in the Tao. The Tao is the, tr- you know, the truth and the, the, the Taoist tradition, right? It's, and it means, the, the character means the way. Path, road, the way, right? So we're already in this way. You couldn't be outside of it. It's everything, right? But we 
under delusion, experience ourselves as in a separate little way. Right? We think our little way is ours, right? And, and, and that it's somehow cut off from all the other ways. Right? There's just one. And so the, the spiritual practice is about becoming more and more like you, you feel deep down inside that, that what your way is, is in harmony, is in the way. The, not in the way as an obstruction, but in the way as in being on the path, on the way, the, moving, move, the movement through. And, and as that happens, it becomes more peaceful. The, the, the rubric here is, are you suffering? Is there suffering? If there's suffering, there's resistance. There's resistance to what? There's resistance to this movement, this natural movement, the inherent movement of the cosmos. See, the dualistic thing, thinking is there's good and there's evil, and we need to be good if we're going to be happy. But the reality is that good and evil are a product of our mind. There's only the way, there's only the Tao, and we need to find out how we can be in harmony with that by letting go of our attachments and our sense of self, our self-centered desires and aversions, and locating them. Maybe we could say that as egoic people, we have, it's like a piece of ice in the river. We're, so we're separated from the water of the river. But if we then can let go enough to melt into the river, then we'll really be a part of just this one thing that we were really already a part of. Before. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Let's leave it like that. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes, Laura. Well, when you were saying that, what came to my mind is if we become attached to the results, we're either caught into time of looking, you know, forward or backward, like what we did, you know, that way, or the sense that um, it was good or bad, you know, making some judgment. But if you let go of the results, then you're always in the now. Yes, that's another way of talking about this. Yeah. Yeah, and then and that's this uh, this last quote, Ramana, the the mind that desires particular results departing, and then it will put, the mind will possess the heart will possess the auspicious and excellent nishkamya buddhi, a mind that lacks desires for results, the home of bliss. That's this living in the now, you know. Because if you know, if if you're not concerned with what's going to happen then your attention just reverts to what's arising. You know, you're not splitting your attention and you know, it's much more relaxing. Abdullah. Um, you do something kind of compassion as you go into it, but then pride takes over or comes up. Mm. I mean, it is conditioned. And so then you end up, uh, you know, I mean, if you're aware of it, well, maybe you can get through it, but then if you don't, then the, the intention of doing, doing compassion now evolves into like this internal conflict. You know, so I wonder if you can speak to that. Well, that's a great opportunity for practice, but you said it yourself. It, the practice starts when you become aware of what's happening. So if you, and that's why we cultivate mindfulness. That's why we do our meditations. That's why we practice, right? Is so that we can become aware of the selfishness when it arises or soon after, hopefully. Because if we're not aware of it, then we're just acting. We think we're free, 
But we're acting from those desires and aversions. We're acting from pride. We're acting from anger. We're acting from greed. And we don't even know. The poachers have no idea that they're creating their misery. I mean, most likely. You know, but most people who are operating under deep delusion and causing lots of pain for others are, think that they're doing the right thing in their own mind. You know, I'm providing for my family. If I don't do this, somebody else will. You know, and how many, right? The road to hell is paved with good, good intentions. Yeah, <laughs> but but are they good? Are they coming from you know from self self selfless love and compassion, or are they coming from uh, uh, this condition, pride, or you know? And so that's that's really the key, and that's where the practice is. So there's no easy answer to that question, other than you know we we need to cultivate our mindfulness, we need to do our practice, and become aware of our conditioning. All of each of us has that responsibility. Nobody can do that for us. We have to, you know, continually, and that's the, and it can be scary, and it can be, um, uh, you know, disheartening. You can get to a point where, it's, oh man, I thought I was much more enlightened than this, and here I am acting like this again, you know, and and so it's a call to be, you know, keep going back, keep going back, and you know, the most of the. Um, the, the, the mystics that don't claim to be saints. They claim to be aware of their own, the insignificance of their own self, right? It's, it's, it's not, oh, I'm such a good person, I've never harmed a fly. It's more like, oh my God, I was such a sinner. You know, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sort of reformed, but, you know, I'm doing my best. You know, it's, it's humility. You know, we're all capable of great selfishness. So we need to be vigilant. Somebody over there? I just was going to share one of the teachings and readings of the Bhagavad Gita that benefited me a great deal in that scenario is to renounce the fruit of your actions in devotion. And so it surrenders the attachment when it's given over. It's um, for the benefit of the all. Similar to you know, um, and and you know, even in that, you know, you sometimes have to check yourself before you wreck yourself again. You know, <laughs> but there's something um, almost mantra about it: surrender the fruit of your actions for the benefit of others. Yeah. So this practice can become a devotional practice very easily. In the Bhagavad Gita, he talks about several different types. You know, yogic approach the more like the philosopher approach or the janana and the devotional approach. So there's different approaches to the same teaching. It's, it's kind of depends on your um, your appetite, your proclivity, your you know the way that you're wired. What might be best for you? Uh, but yeah, I recommend the Gita if people are interested. If they found the teaching interesting. That it's a very um, stellar text. Very beautiful. All right. Well, you're welcome to stay for tea. It looks like there's a bake sale, so for a buck or something, you and the library is open. Until next time, peace to you all.